Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Todd, and Tude. Oh yeah, it's Dude here. I mean Tude with Don and Andy. It's the Album Nerds Podcast and I'm going to say hi to my friends. How you guys doing? Doing well. What's up there, buddy? What's up? We're recording yeah. a podcast, Andy. Oh, right. Good. I'll explain it to you. We're three friends. We love the album format. We love discussing albums, talking about music, generally nerding out on the subject, and uh, that's what we do here on the show, and we share it with all y'all listeners. We got a little process for picking out albums, and uh, it gets kind of crazy. Andy wants to tell the folks what we got cooking. Yeah. Well, what we cook with is a wheel of destiny. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let me tell you about this wheel. I believe it was constructed back in the 1500s. Is that correct? Actually, I've been reading up on it, and it, it seems as if around the same time as Stonehenge. It's made from some of the same materials. Oh, yeah. I thought I saw some druid markings on it last time we <laughs> pulled it out. But yeah, it definitely has some mystical qualities to it. And uh, what we do is we inscribe. The dude has a large chisel. He inscribes on this wheel every week a new topic. And it's filled up to the brim, gave it a spin to la- end of last episode, and it landed on a space that simply said, one and done. So, one and done just means that uh, an artist uh, only had one official LP or one one official release. It's a shorter list than, than you would think uh, you know, w- with the, the music industry. When something is remotely successful, it tends to... <laughs> Um, you know, they tend to milk it for, for all it's worth. So, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of super groups on the list and, and side projects. And then there's, you know, there's some that, that have interesting stories or, you know, tragic, tragic stories. So I, I think we have some of those uh, today. So we're each going to present a one and done album. Uh, we've got our, our question of the week and we're going to, we're going to spin that magical wheel uh, again at the end. It's time to choose our albums, gentlemen. Let's do it. You- Choo-choo-choose me? All right, so I'm first up here. My selection going back to May of 1989. Bringing out some ska music, boys. I know you guys are super excited to talk about this genre. Talk about Operation Ivy and their debut and final record titled simply Energy. We are going to play a cut from the opening track, Ballad. Get the blood flowing, guys. Isn't that just breath of fresh air? Yeah, that that one's good. <laughs> All right, we'll get into it in a second. Uh, so this is the debut, and like I said, final record for the Berkeley, California four-piece. They had put out an EP before this, and a couple of random songs after it were eventually released, but this was their only official album. They actually broke up on the day it released, which I thought was kind of apropos uh, at the release party was actually their final performance wow. as a group. It's so punk rock. I know, right? Not so badass. <laughs> so uh, they were one of the first members signed to Lookout Records, which would go on to kind of fame for Green Day later in the, in the early 90s. They also kind of helped put the East Bay punk scene on the map, which was fairly popular at this time as well uh, in California. Yeah, uh, founding members Tim Armstrong and Matt Freeman would go on to form the band Rancid. If you remember, they were fairly oh, well-known in the mid-90s. 
Yes. That, yeah, that's the one I remember most is, is Rancid because yeah. I hadn't heard of as all the people I knew in, in college called them Op Ivy because that's so much cooler. Uh, that's cool, uh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, oh, yeah, they're from Op Ivy. I'm like, I don't know what that is. It's founders of Ska Punk. It was a it was a period where that was really hot, and I was yeah. I was very resistant to it because of as we've talked about many times, I was so fully sold on wearing flannels and being a poet grunge guy that when things started shifting, I dug my heels in and just I just couldn't accept it. As much as my friends tried, I went to shows. They were all skanking all over town, and I'm like, I can't do it. Hmm. I have to wear that flannel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought this record was interesting because it it's a Scott record. There's definitely elements of Scott in there, but I would say primarily it's a, more of a punk rock record. I think they, like you said, they kind of blended the two genres into this new thing called Scott Punk, or I think that was the official name, Punk Scott. Skunk, skunk I think. Skunk. Skank. <laughs> skank is something different. Oh, okay. uh, I, yeah, I do, the, the punk elements here make this a much more enjoyable listen for me yeah i mean i don't mind the chaka here and there you know yeah <laughs> right it seems to kind of alternate back and forth between like straight up punk and uh and, and ska i think there's only one song that has horns in it so like when i think of sky i tend to think of uh you know of, of horns so um yeah, so this, you know, it's a much more straightforward punk rock treatment of, of ska, which which I appreciate. Yeah, I I agree with that. It's more enjoyable for me without the additional element of the horns, which add the fun factor to ska, which is what punk is not supposed to be fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Typically not, no. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think there's just saxophone on... Very minimal. I think what kind of gives it that bounciness of Scott is the is the bass uh, is really jumping up and down through most of these songs. So it has that that groove going on, which I appreciate. Um, but a lot of the lyrics are deal with typical punk rock themes, like uh, you know, anti consumerism, anti war, uh, anti you know anything mainstream in society. Pretty much, I always enjoy that. I think that works so well in this in the genre. Yeah, I remember seeing these. On the album art, this sort of like dancing ska man, uh, those stickers and badges like around in high school constantly. I didn't really know what it was because I wasn't into them at the time. But coming back to it, it's, it was really a pretty refreshing listen. And uh, the appeal of punk rock is how fast and dirty and quick it is. And and I mean, they recorded this record primarily in one day. And I think that adds a lot to the, the, the energy of the record. You know, obviously aptly named. You've talked about the DIY aspects of punk that make it so interesting and open the gates for other types of music to go that direction. Totally. Yeah. I mean, they did the album art themselves and they did the album liner with them by man members and like help distribution. Like it was total DIY projects and they're young kids though. I mean, they're like 20 at the time they did this. So I don't know. what do you guys think of the record as a whole? Like it's, there's, it's been re-released in a couple different versions now. The, original record energy itself is only about 35 minutes long 19 tracks there's no tracks over two minutes long yeah i i think this is a you know this is a, a highly listenable album uh, we've talked about it factor before and uh, you know i think they they 
they they have some sort of magic there you know that that kind of pops more so than you know than other you know punk that that I hear from from that era so yeah it's a, it's a it's a good album i uh, i'm glad you mentioned the bass sound uh, which which i like uh, a, a lot um you know, there's definitely somebody there uh, playing with with a pick you know that just gives it sort of a a, a different sound maybe a, a more a, aggressive sound and also you know i i Ended up, you know, researching a, a little bit the uh, the relationship between punk and, and ska. You know, I think a lot they had kind of like a parallel existence, and you would have you know ska bands and punk bands uh, on the same bill, but there wasn't you know a, a ton of crossover. So it kind of makes sense that the that the two genres you know fused. Um, although you know, if you go back to bands like uh, the English Beat. Uh, and the specials and, and madness. I mean, there were punk rock elements to them, but they were, you know, I think much more, um, probably more complex and more ska than, than punk. I pretty much, I said it before. I like the punky parts. I can swallow the ska. It's cool to finally check out this thing that I had people ska snobbing me about in the past. So it was, it was, it was nice to finally hear it. Yeah, these guys definitely lean more into the punk and kind of just a sprinkling of ska, if you will. I did want to play probably the most ska-sounding record on the, on the album here. is actually the second cut, in my opinion. Uh, it's all taste of sound system. Yeah, one day that I classic ska. That pick it up thing, yeah. <laughs> yep. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty much ska standard right there. I I enjoy that track. I mean, I don't know. I did, I grew up in the period in the late '90s where ska was looked favorably upon for at least a couple of years. So I don't, that doesn't really bother me as much as might some people. One thing that I find goofy about this era of American punk music is the like. School administrator tells you that you can't wear a Bart Simpson t-shirt. What are you going to do? You know, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, I, what I enjoyed about the English punk, the earlier stuff, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Clash, is that it was about about something stuff yeah. not about getting detention. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was working class or, you know, it kind of came out of poverty, yeah. I think. Whereas, you know, with this stuff, I picture suburban white boys. Andy, why this and the Sex Pistols would have been a possibility for a one and done? Was it the ska element and and just that being a part of your musical upbringing? Yeah, I you know I love that Sex Pistols record when in the same when I was the same age I was enjoying ska. I went back and listened to it. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't think it was as great as I remembered it being. It felt kind of commercial, I guess. <laughs> but actually, you know, hearing the the punk tracks and the the ska tracks back to back. I do think ska requires probably a little more musicianship than, than punk rock. Um, yeah. I guess a little bit more. Yeah. Why don't we play one more cut here? This is uh, probably the most rancid sounding track I could pick off the record. Uh, some <laughs> taste of uh, take warning. Destination unknown, Ruby, 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 Zoho. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, they do slow things down a little bit at times. I mean, that song is almost three minutes long. 
So it's cool. You can definitely hear some some hints of what would, what would this group what this group would become later on uh, on this record. It's unfortunate they didn't uh, incorporate ska into any of the song titles. Well, that's the fortunate <laughs> part. That's part of why I could. <laughs> you don't name your own genre in your song. I just. <laughs> right. no that way. always rubbed me the wrong way. So that was a blessing <laughs> that there were no ska. It's like they were song they were playing ska categories. Oh, yeah. Bad joke if I ever heard That's a crickets moment right there, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> the three words I come up with for this record were one O N E. Oh, I got oh yeah, nice because it's fun. Oh yeah, <laughs> the N nostalgic because it definitely makes me feel nostalgic for my teenage years. And for the E, energetic. That is the album title. All right, so once again, the album is Energy by Operation Ivy. Came out back in the late eighties. What a fun little blast from the past if you can stomach some ska. Excuse me, I'd like to ask you a few questions. That's right, once again, it is the time on the program when we ask ourselves a question. Album nerds, what band do you wish only put out one record? I mean, this is a tough question. Where I end up landing, I mean, there's a few possibilities. I mean, I think I think for me, 311 would fall into this category. I never enjoyed any of their later stuff after that breakthrough record but the one i came back to was most disappointing to me was uh the band sponge which was like a mid-90s alternative rock kind of catchy catchy yeah they had some big hits and then they put out a follow-up record that really changed sound quite a bit and they've been pretty prolific actually through the 2000s as well all i care about was that rounding pinata record if you guys remember that oh yeah the candy corn on the cover oh yeah yes candy corn record so 90s what about you guys well, I went with uh, a, a record that, that you guys covered on the, the show in the past, uh, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. It's just such a, you know, such a huge album. It's the, the definitive Guns N' Roses. I mean, I, I appreciate some of the stuff that, that came afterwards, but, you know, if they had, if they had stopped there, that would, uh, that would have been perfect. Well, it's still kind of treated like, I mean, even though Use Your Illusion 1 or 2, November Rain, and, you know, there were there were big hits off of that, but in terms of what Guns N' Roses, the dirty LA band, that is the essence of them. So I, I get it. If it had stopped there, I think it would have been enough. Rumor is they're working on maybe making an album now, and it could be their best yet. You never know. Oh, my God. That's been the rumor for like 30 years, man. Well. Yes, well, I choose to believe it. <laughs> So me, presidents of the United States of America with their self-titled, with the peaches and lump and the oddly tuned guitars where they took bass strings and put them on their guitars and guitar strings on the bass and all this other wacky stuff. And they were just more like avant-garde musical artists having fun and they accidentally got famous because they were from Seattle in 1995. So, and they continued, they had to follow that up, obviously. Not a band I was really into at the time. I found them a little annoying, but looking back, it's fun. It's a fun album to listen to. It's just weird, and you can tell that it is pure. No one's trying to be anything there. So if it had stopped there, that would have been fine. I think it was their their moment in the sun and uh, pretty cool, but they could have stopped. It's not to be said for kind of being like, like a one-trick pony sort of, but like once you've done that, like how do you really... Can't tell the same joke again, you know. Like, how do you, 
How do you follow that up, really? Listeners, hit us up on the socials and on Discord and let us know what band you wish only put out one record. My pick for a one and done is uh, an album from October 1990, uh, a band called The Laws. This is their, their self-titled and, and only album, right? It's called The Laws, obviously. But before we, we get into the, to the history, uh, let's, uh, let's hear their, their most known song. Uh, this is There She Goes. Well, let me, let me give you the, the history lesson. Uh, so the, the Laws were a Liverpool band. Uh, formed in, in 1983, uh, but a gentleman named, uh, known as uh, Lee Mavers uh, joined the band in 84 and quickly basically took creative control of the band. They were signed to a, a record label called Go Discs in 86, and really for the, the better part of the next five years, they worked hard on a debut album. They went through countless band members, several producers, uh, and if you were you know familiar with, with Brit pop uh, at the time i mean these are, are some of the big names uh john porter um john lecky mike hedges you know these are these are people that you know worked with the cure and, and radiohead and, and the smiths and then the the last attempt was with steve lillywhite uh who you might know from from u2 albums and morrissey Apparently that session, uh, ended in, in failure as well, but the, the record label had, had had enough and they told Steve Lillywhite to, you know, to, to assemble, uh, an album with, with what he had. Uh, and we ended up with this album. The band, uh, immediately, you know, particularly, I mean, uh, Lee Mavers basically is the laws. The only other really notable member is, is John Power, uh, who ended up forming a band called Cast. They trashed the album afterwards. You know, they, you know, they didn't, <laughs> they just talked about how terrible it, it was. What? So they worked on it for five years and then weren't happy with the results after all that, after all those famous people. They recorded it in full several times for different producers and then would can it. And I mean, I, I assume drugs were a part of the problem here, but. I don't. What I don't understand is this is not the kind of music that's that complicated. Right. Yeah. This right? isn't Brian Wilson and Smile. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He just had this this sound in his head, and he just never got it. But it's r ridiculous because they've released all these different outtakes from all the different producers. There's a BBC album uh, as well, and if you watch their their live stuff, it all kind of sounds the same. <laughs> You know, I mean, there's nothing that dramatic. So you, you wonder what, you know, what he, what he was going for. And it, and it continued even after this. I was listening to an interview with Steve Lillywhite, uh, who was talking about, um, you know, Johnny Marr, the, you know, former guitarist of the Smiths wanted to produce Lee Mavers because supposedly he has, um, more songs, um, that are, you know, supposedly great. They couldn't get anything together because he still wants to record this album. <laughs> he wants to do it right. <laughs> he's, still, he's still stuck yeah. on this after so, uh, wow. yeah. So anyway, I mean, I, I love this, this, this album. Um, and I, I just kind of love the, you know, the mythology with it here, you know, just, uh, I mean, I love the, the tortured artist, the eccentric songwriter, you know, I, I just, makes this a, a cool record well so i mean i guess we should talk more you know uh, about the album for my three words i did 12 timeless melodies so i, I just stole the the song title time timeless melody uh why don't we play uh why don't we play a clip uh, of that one so 
kind of kicked the door open for, I know the Stone Roses and stuff are already going, but the, the Oasis type of stuff, that definitely benefited from this mythology and maybe the fact that they weren't around to compete against. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Good point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. But, the, you know, this just embodies, you know, I, I think pop at its best. You know, it's melodic. It's catchy. Uh, it's a, a little bit moody. Um, it's simple, but it's not, you know, vapid. Uh, you know, there's it, it appeals on the surface, but you can also spend more time with it and uh, and, and form, find more to, to love about it. Yeah. So, uh, what do you what do you guys think? I, I like I, like you said. I think there is an immediacy to this music, which is really nice. What surprised me the most was as you get deeper into the record, there's some pretty intricate, uh, interesting songs on the particularly the the back half of this that I really found myself enjoying. Most of the songs are a little bit in that shorter vein, you know, two or three minutes. But the closing cut. Looking Glass goes off in a totally different direction. It's like seven minutes and it's a little bit darker. And I found that one pretty enjoyable, along with a lot of the, the more catchy songs which towards the beginning of the record, which are perfect amount of jangle and melody and a little bit of, you know, that British flavor. So yeah, I, I overall did find it pretty, pretty fun. For me, there she goes. I hadn't, I didn't hear that song until the movie. Uh, so I married an axe murderer with Mike Myers. Funny movie if you haven't seen it before Wayne's World <laughs> came out. And that song is featured in there. And I'm like, hey, that's a pretty cool song. I'd never heard of The Laws. And I never, this is my first time actually listening to their album. It was fun listening to. Uh, you know, sounds very much in the same vein as, as the other artists we talked about. But yeah, I, I hear some, there's some special stuff there lyrically. And Lee's personality comes through and he's got a nice voice for this genre. So it's a shame. I think it's a shame that they didn't, they were unable to put this in the can and then move forward because it could have only, I think it would have gone, it could have only gone up, but we'll never know. I was gonna say, it, it seems hard to imagine. Like, I know they were caught up in a lot of the details, but these songs are all so catchy and it's hard to imagine them not being able to create some more similar songs if they kind of got out of their own way. You know, if they, they could follow this up down the road, I can't imagine it being bad. Uh, why don't we, uh, uh, just to show that there's a you know a more rockin' side to the to the album, uh, why don't we play a, a quick clip of "I Can't Sleep." Yeah, that was my favorite. Yeah, kind of reminds me of that stuff that came about ten years later with like the hives and the vines and jet and strokes and all that stuff. Absolutely, I totally agree. I was going to say the same thing. It's weird because I hear like. 60s like Britpop and from that a couple of these early songs uh, do you know like who those some of their influences were oh yeah I mean you know they, obviously all the the British invasion stuff so I mean the Beatles are, are definitely there well if you're if you're a band from Liverpool right I mean you can't grow up in Liverpool <laughs> and not have the Beatles in your blood you know yeah and I definitely hear I mean the Kinks a little bit of the Who Captain Beefheart <laughs> Um, I should acknowledge just because I, I kind of criticized the, the tragically hip for not, you know, having their own sound. Uh, I guess you could say the, I guess you could say the same thing uh, uh, about the laws. You know, they kind of sound like a, a bunch of other artists. I wasn't going to say it because I'm a gentleman. <laughs> the cure sucks. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, Going back to the idea that this record sounds, I can't place it. And if I didn't know this was from the early 90s, I you could easily tell me it's from the 60s as it was from 2010. And I would 
definitely believe both of us. There's something to be said for that, even though it is maybe a little samey, but uh, there's something classic to it, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, so that was uh, the Laws self-titled album. All right, and now a word from our sponsor, us. This is friendship, pure unadulterated friendship. Hey there, music fans. You love the album format much as we do. I'll talk about it with people who also love it. Check out the album nerd's Discord. <laughs> uh, check out the album nerd's Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord community of like-minded music nerds who love talking about albums and whatever else is going on in your life. Could be uh, problems at home. <laughs> what the hell? This is to talk about music. This is not. This is not a hotline. If you're having problems at home, however, you know, we're, we're happy to p- point you in the direction of a trained professional. <laughs> His name is Morrissey. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Anybody can help you with your problems. Yeah, come tell us what albums you recommend, albums you love. We're always looking for music to listen to. We're always putting out our recommendations for you guys to listen to. So let's share, huh? Yeah, sharing is caring, as they say. So come care about some good music, albumnerds.com slash discord. In more music news, members of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam have joined together in a new side project called Temple of the Dog. Thanks, Kurt. That was Kurt Loader of MTV News with breaking news about the band I'm going to talk about today. Temple of the Dog. The album is also called Temple of the Dog. Came out April 16th. 1991. Let's get started with a song you might have heard. It's called Hunger Strike. Uh, The Mighty Pipes of Chris Cornell fronting this band formed uh, out of the ashes of uh, Andy Wood lead singer of Mother Lovebone, who had recently passed away, uh, drug overdose, was roommates with Chris Cornell. And uh, Chris wrote a couple songs about his friend, wanted to record them, gathered a couple of members of Mother Lovebone, who became members of Pearl Jam, and uh, drummer Matt Cameron from Soundgarden. And they went to record the songs, ended up recording an album of uh, two songs that are directly about Andy Wood, and then the rest came, but it was music that Chris thought Andy would enjoy. Did you boys enjoy this music? Andy? Not you're not Andy Wood, you're the other Andy, but did you enjoy this? <laughs> the other Andy. Uh yeah. I remember loving this. I owned this record. Uh when it came out, I was pretty excited about it. That you had picked it. I came back on it though, I don't know. I was a little bit mixed on it overall. Besides Chris, I thought some of it was pretty pretty loose and maybe a little empty at times. Don? Yeah, I, you know, I think this is the, the first time I, I ever listened to the, the entire album. Um, you know, when I picture grunge in my mind, I think I picture the, the video of Hunger Strike and, you know, Eddie Vedder and his um, shorts and tights and they're on yeah. some mountain <laughs> in the Pacific Northwest or something. So, yeah, that's uh, for me, it's always been like the stereotypical uh, grunge act. But yeah, you know, I, I enjoyed it uh, a lot. I like how somehow it's aggressive but it's still kind of moody and, and melodic. Uh, I, I think they, they do a, a, a good job with, with that. Yeah, it's a lot more moody and bluesy than I remembered it 
being in the 90s, it doesn't really have that, with the exception of one or two songs, have that grunge edge to it that I would have expected it to. I assume that's because of the subject matter is kind of mournful. And yeah. It, well, so this thing was recorded in 15 days. I don't think it was designed to be anything more than using music as therapy for what they were going through and a tribute to Andy Wood and to his music and to how they felt about him not being around anymore and the energy he brought to the Seattle scene. The name of the project, Temple of the Dog, is for a reference to a, a lyric that Andy wrote. So that's kind of where they're going with this. And, you know, there are melodic elements of it. Mother Love Bone was not a grunge band. They were more of a glam rock band. And, uh, of course, Pearl Jam that came from two of the members that were in Mother Love Bone, uh, Jeff and uh, Stone, they took some of that melodicism into Pearl Jam, which is why they have a diff kind of a different sound than, than the other grunge bands like Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, etc. Um, my three words are community. And in parentheses, I have pure, unadulterated friendship. That's cheating. <laughs> Music <laughs> and generational. This was about the Seattle community, these friends. All these bands were friends with each other, and that music scene was something special. And that's what I think sparked so much, like for me anyway, and other listeners at the time, like Temple the Dog. And you're like, wait, that guy's in Pearl Jam. And how are these guys performing together? And what is this? And, and then you learn about Mother Love Bone because of it. And you learn about things, and it just was so... Information was harder to come by. It was all word of mouth. There was lore. There was mystery to it all and it was really cool why don't we uh listen to a little bit of one of the songs specifically for andy wood and featuring chris cornell's incredible vocals say hello to heaven that line always got me uh you know directly of all the things we'll never be able to do together i didn't want to I never yeah. wanted to say this. Never wanted to have to write this down. Yeah. It's, it's, it's shocking to me, like, how polished and beautiful some of the moments are on those those first few cuts there. And then I feel like the B-side just totally falls apart <laughs> in comparison, I guess. It wasn't like the laws, you know? They weren't trying to craft this thing and shine it all up and make it just perfect. They didn't have a sound in mind. It just whatever came out, came out. That's in contrast with the albums of these of Soundgarden and stuff. Um, I think that's what's kind of cool. I mean, just really quick, Mother Love Bones Apple came out July 1990. Andrew Wood passed away in March of 1990. Uh, Bad Motor Finger by Soundgarden came out October 8th, 1991. Pearl Jam 10, August 17th, 1991. And this came out in, August, in April of 1991. Nirvana kicks the door down for all of it. In September of 1991. So it's just so much going on. It was just amazing. That uh, that Kurt Loder report was kind of misleading. You know, it kind of makes it look like, oh, you know, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden are going to collaborate. But but it was recorded before Pearl Jam even existed, right? Yeah. Uh, Eddie Vedder was only on it because he was there to uh, audition for Pearl Jam. He was in Seattle to see if they could be a band together, which is also pretty cool and interesting. Uh yeah, I, I love all of it. Hey, I, I did find something I think is really interesting. I want to play an isolated vocal from Say Hello to Heaven just to hear. It's supposedly the highest note he ever sang, Chris Cornell. So let's check that out real quick. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, I don't know. I, I don't recognize Chris Cornell, but you know, from a, a, a 10 second clip. Jeez, John, <laughs> what is your problem? You just got to rip it all down, huh? <laughs> Dude likes it. I thought that was Dio. <laughs> <laughs> Don didn't really say that. I, I. I had some fun with editing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Chris Cornell. Oh, God, he's pretty much at the peak of his powers here, and he was pretty powerful <laughs> with his voice there. Just incredible. Pushing Forward Back is probably my favorite rocker on here, and it is the most Soundgarden-ish. I love Soundgarden, and I agree that is definitely could fit on any Soundgarden record. What do you think about that one, Don? Yeah, that, that's that's a good one. Now that the name is, I like the the second song there that goes on for like eleven minutes. I actually in, enjoyed that. The one where he's reaching down, reach down. Yeah, yep. <laughs> the one where he's reaching. <laughs> that was one I Andy uh, because he was such a showman. Andy Wood was such a showman and reaching out to the crowd and uh, and the energy that about. comes from it. Yeah, and he was he was he would wear crazy outfits and was very had a over the top sort of performing style it's that sort of the non-contrived aspect of the album i i think with with that song it's like they just didn't know when to turn off the recorder you know they were just playing you know and and it works it just i i think it's that passion uh these bands and the music and the Seattle scene and what it represented and how it came about. And there was just something special about it that uh, my generation and generations since have been able to latch onto and, and have be a part of who they are. And this album really reflects a lot of that, you know, and there was other generations have experienced this as well. There was still my parents' generation, the, the, Woodstock generation, the hippie generation, they had their special thing, the Beatles and the Doors and, and, and all of that. And that, that, those moments felt like that for me. I hear what you're saying. Definitely. And, and I don't know if generations now have that. I mean, are people growing up being like, the music of Lady Gaga has, is defines me, you know? Like, I don't know. That's a good, good question. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if scenes are quite as Im important as they, they once were. Cause I think, you know, with, with streaming and, and, you know, everybody having access to, to everything. I'm not sure that people specialize quite as much as, as they did, you know, when, when we were younger. Or I wonder if people are like so into their niche that they aren't even concerned about pop space, I guess, in the way. Cause like everybody in the nineties was listening to this music or was at least aware of it. And I don't know if we are really all aware of the same thing in, in the way that we were 30 years ago. Plus, yeah, I was so into it that I was going and, and buying $20 CD singles from Italy or whatever to get a certain song. And I took it beyond. So when, as things do, as trends change, I was like left holding the bag. Like, well, what the hell do I do now? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. But yeah, I still love this stuff. And I love thinking back on those days. Are there just as great albums artists etc that are around now yeah absolutely there's tons of music to love but this was a special time for me so it was fun to be able to bring this one up so that was temple of the dog self-titled if you're interested in the whole seattle scene and really digging into all the connective tissue go check it out and everything else that seattle had to offer back in those days done andy what did we learn here today I mean, for me, I kept 
come back to this idea of like making an album is hard work man like uh it's very there's a lot of things that can go wrong and even amongst band members or distribution or the label or whatever fucking do it <laughs> be done with it especially think of the laws like man five years on a record that's crazy you know like the operation ivy record i picked out like they spent a few months trying to record it and it didn't work out so they did it in one day and it worked out beautifully so i think there's something to that especially with your debut just like get it out there see what happens I'm reminded of the what the cliche, it's it's better to burn out than to, to fade away. You know, I think just having one album from these artists, you know, lends to their their mystique or something, you know, so we never, you know, gave them a chance or they never got a chance to to ruin their their legacies. So I you know, I think that, you know, that that makes this this group of albums uh, pretty cool. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I learned a lot about the laws. I learned about Op Ivy, and that was cool. I knew a lot about Temple of the Dog, but in in the context of the others, it was it was interesting to to think about, which I hadn't. I think I mentioned earlier. This was a period of musical expression to deal with an issue, you know, deal with the death of their friend, and they didn't go back to it, and they didn't try to make it into a thing. It was just a moment in time and from great artists that went on to do great things with other bands. So that's what, that's what I hadn't thought about before. I'd always thought, ah, I want more of that, but I'm glad we didn't get more of that. It was perfect. Yeah. That's a really good point, man. I feel especially with those super groups, they're so often brought together with the sole purpose of selling records or, you know, selling concert tickets. That is a good case for, Part, our Temple of the Dog is stands alone. And that. It got hot after those bands got hot on their own. And then it became a thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. That's one to grow on. All right, boys and girls. Gather around and we're going to erect the wheel once again. Erect. How about we just assemble Stand it? Stand it up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they, they, okay. you're harassing that wheel, man. Hey, man, that wheel's done a lot to me over the last few months there. That's true. Got a lot of history. <laughs> All right, let's give that wheel a spin. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. It's a very famous band. Uh-oh. So we're going to be digging into the catalog of Sponge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You too. Oh. oh, okay. You too. Lots of records to pick from. What a couple, few decades. I think they're going to be pretty obvious choices. There are some big standouts over the period of their different sounds. So <laughs> I, I don't think it'll. This will not be a tough week for making a decision. Wheel has spoken. <laughs> Do you have a favorite U2 album? Do you have a favorite one and done? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcasts at albumnerds.com or leave a voicemail at 585-210-2454. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Album Nerds. And if you'd like to support the show, do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All right. Thanks for listening to the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll catch you next time with three U2 albums to discuss. Word up. 
Thanks for listening. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs> it's going to be May. <laughs> it is going to be May. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even like the month. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna be me.